0: Welcome to back to the futures, the official podcast of the futures league presented by 78 sports. My name is Owen Shadrick. Welcome to episode nine of season six. We are getting closer and closer to opening day in the futures league. It is coming at the end of May sooner than you think. This episode is a special one. We've got two Great journalists who have been around since the late 80s. It's Howard Herman from the Berkshire Eagle and Tom King from the Nashua Telegraph, two guys who have seen it all from Futures League baseball to high school baseball to high school sports to college sports to pro sports. You name it, they've probably covered it. It was an honor to host this episode, and these two guys are brilliant minds in the industry. We want to get you that interview before we do please continue to keep digging in for pete using the caption below thank you guys again as always for tuning in all season long and please tune into this episode you don't want to miss it here is howard herman and tom king we are honored to be joined by two guests here for episode nine of season six of back to the futures two guys who have been telling stories in baseball in the sports world for tom king it's been since 1986 at the national with telegraph and for howard herman it's been since 80, 1988 at the berkshire eagle gentlemen thank you so much for joining me today how we doing
1: Oh, we're doing great thanks for inviting me great Alan. geez i got howard by two years that's not good (laughs) yeah well you started younger than i did that's probably maybe yeah i don't know
0: (laughs) but, but either way you guys have been doing it for a long time and doing it quite well and to get started here, I want to ask both of you. Obviously, we are coming up here on the summer and the 2023 Futures League season, which you guys have covered for since its inauguration in 2011. What are you guys looking forward to most here in 2023 for the Futures League?
1: I, well, I'd I- have to say uh, just to look at the quality of the baseball and see it just continue to get better as things progress. Um, I think that the quality obviously during 2020 when all the Division One players had nowhere to go uh, was probably the best quality it's ever been. I'd like to see it eventually get back up to there. I think last year, two years ago, I thought it took a step back. I think last year it took a step forward, and I'm looking forward to taking another step forward again this year. What What I
2: find interesting, and I see it a lot on – I've looked at the roster here in Pittsfield – is that the league is starting to get more recent prep school high school graduates but they are going to very high powered institutions um there are um 11 high 11 high school graduates um on the Pittsfield roster and all of them are going division one four of them are going to um, Kansas State which of course is you know in the big 12 is a power five league, which I find really, really interesting to see.
1: I'm at the opposite view. I don't like that many high school graduates on a team. I don't like that many high school graduates in the league. I was around when the, when the rule was first instituted. And it was instituted to get a player, Chris Shaw, who was uh, from Lexington, Mass. I believe it was Lexington. And they wanted to get him into the league because he was a blue chip prospect going to Boston College. And the, uh, BC was looking for a good place for him to play close by. And he was also draft, you know, very draftable. And uh, so he ended up on Nashua and they instituted the high school rule. Now, when they first instituted the high school rule, Howard and Owen, you're only supposed to have two two high school graduates. And it progressed now to the point where 12 years later, there's almost an unlimited amount, um, and some teams are relying on them more. And, and I think what happens is, is the organizations will go to a college, and say okay go to a college coach and say okay I want you know can I get this guy or this guy this guy and the college coach will say sure but we'd also like you to take this kid if you can he's going to graduate this year he's our top recruit and he's going to be an incoming freshman and we we would love to see him play at the college level because he gives them a head start right it gives these guys a real good head start so in in some ways, I think teams are depending on it more. I I'd like to see it reversed a little bit and and see a limit enforced, a, a better, a, a more stringent limit. But uh, I don't know if we'll I don't know if we'll see that because you want to have the opportunity for the players and these guys. I I admit some of these guys have really played well. Um, prep school guys, I think, are a little different. Nashville had a prep school kid last year. You ended up. Winning the t- winning the championship for him with a whole run, and he was—you could tell—he was far and above the level of a high school grad because he had played prep school ball. Uh, so I think that's a little different. But some of the high school graduates, I, I worry about a little bit in terms of Nashville had a, a few of them uh, in a year where they didn't make the playoffs uh, uh, two years ago, and it wasn't a very good season. You could tell that they were. Too young for the league, and I think that that's a danger that this league—you don't want this league to fall into. No, you're right. I've noted
2: it's feast or famine with these kids. Yeah. Um. Uh. For example, um. The number one, uh, the Brewers' number one prospect, South Frelick, um, comes out of comes out of Lexington High School. Yeah. And you know, ate up the league like some like nobody's business, and now right. you know he's on he's on the verge of you know making big money in the major leagues. Uh um, right. in Pittsfield, my I I would argue to anyone that last summer, uh Bo Bramer, who played center field for the Pittsfield Suns, who had just come out of a Pittsfield High School and is now that is now on the roster of Fordham, might have been the best defensive outfielder, defensive center fielder in the league and still hit 340. Yep. Obviously the stage was not too big for him. There were a couple of other kids on the, I can only speak mainly for the local roster who had who had trouble adjusting to it. Another player, right. you know, who played very well um, and is coming back to Pittsfield is Derek Paris, who caught and played first base and is now the starting is now like alternating its starting catcher as a freshman at UMBC. The league was not big enough for was not too big for him. I agree with you, and I. And the concern is that the more that come in, the more the league will be too big for them.
1: Yes, and that's the thing is I think I think if you're going for the talent, there are if you go for for if you're if you're bringing three high school guys or three prep guys or high school grads, on, you are bringing them on knowing that they're probably going to be able to cut it. If you're bringing six, seven, eight. Nine, you can't be too sure of that, right? I mean, you you know, and that and that's the danger in in my mind. But I mean, it's still it's add a lot to the school. I mean, Shaw was the number one pick. um, uh, The uh, by the Astros, ended up with the Giants. Uh, He made the majors briefly, all of that, and you know, so it 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 works. But you've got to know that that's the player. That this player is a can't miss. And that's why you're bringing him in. And the other guy from last
2: year, Jack Goodman, um, yeah, um, is, you know, is playing at Pepperdine. And I, and I remember, I actually remember him because he played the year before, uh, in the in the high school state championship against a bunch of the kids from the Pittsfield area who played for the Suns. So they all got to get, you know, it was like, were your spidey senses tingling because you were playing them again. And he's another guy. Who stepped right in and played arguably the toughest position in baseball, a shortstop. Right, and he played shortstop like he
1: was a three-year, three-year college veteran. And I think that position—we're talking about positions up the middle. We're not talking about left field or right field or things like that. Some of the high school kids that they're bringing in, Howard Owen, are are a lot of them are up the middle. You know, key position guys. And it amazes me that they that they do that and uh and a and, and a lot of them have worked out. So we
2: yeah, Pittsfield just lost a potential kid, Matt Lee, um, who plays high school baseball in Pittsfield, was going to play for the Suns and he's going to Kansas State. But he can't play he can't play because they want him in they want him in Manhattan at the end of June. So and he's a and he's a a high school kid who touches not the biggest kid, but touches low nineties and they want him in, they want him in the weight room. And the next thing you know, he's going to be, you know, hitting 95.
1: That's just it. Now, Nashville had a kid uh, from a a school that's not in my coverage area, but he played against all those, those kids. And he was a top pitcher in the state last year. And he came in and he just shut down opponents in the league for two, maybe three starts. But, he got a late start because he had to go to orientation and then they wanted him back out there again in the middle of July. And we never saw him again. So those are the things that happen with some of these high school kids. You've got to know, know and you've got to make sure that, the, that they're going to stick around and also that they're, you know, you know, quality, that they can do the job. And I think that's that that's a key. But that's what I look for this year in the league to see the talent level um, even, you know, get higher. Uh, because I remember when it started um, the philosophy was uh, it it really was a division two division three league there weren't many division one kids in it at all Uh, and honestly I think some of the more hungrier uh, hungrier players and the players that are uh, not as you know that are that are more ready to play once the season starts because their tournaments are a little earlier are the D2 D3 kids and they go all out, and they come in. I don't know, maybe, Howard, you'd agree with this. You probably will. They come in with a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. They want to prove they can play with the D1 guys.
2: And oh, very much so. And I'll, and, I, and I'll give you a Pittsfield example. Caleb Spur, all-star outfielder uh, for two years there, is at, you know is still tearing it up at Endicott. He's going to use his extra year at UConn. So he – you know obviously you know yep. caught everybody's attention being you know having a really good couple of seasons in this league what the way i what i've seen out of the out of all of the new england baseball leagues writ large is that there's very little difference anymore except with power arms and power bats if you look at the futures league compared to the NECBL the NECBL has more power arms. Yes. ninety-five guys and and power bats. And then when you compare the NECBL to the Cape, it's off the charts because every every pitcher on the Cape can touch mid mid to upper nineties. Right, and and they got all the power bats there. And I, I think you know guys who play shortstop in the Futures League, it, you know regular infielders, regular catchers. Middle of the rotation guys and that type of thing can play at any league, any summer league in New England. Um, it's just that the big power numbers pitching and hitting
1: aren't there. True, true. And and the thing is, is it, guys from the it's all. It, I'm always interested when I hear that guys from this league go down to Cape Cod and they go on a, a lot of them on a trial basis, uh, and some of them, a couple of them stick you know, which is great for this league. So, I mean, the, look, the Futures League has been around for, since 2011, uh, and I don't know when it started, if, and I and I covered it right from day one uh, with four teams, uh, and when it started, I didn't you know how much long, uh, maybe six, seven years, you know, maybe that's how long, and here we go all the way through to year number 12 so uh it is year number 12 yeah year number 12 so it's um there are a lot of baseball players out there and the league has a niche and it's got a home and it's got a it's got a good purpose and it's you know thriving right now I think
2: it is and I think the big difference between it and some of the other leagues is that it is very much run like a minor league um, That's it. And, it's a for-profit.
1: The, the business, uh, the business title. There is, I don't know what a, a section, whatever. You know, yeah. Whatever. It's not. It is not. It is not like the
2: NECBL or no, the that, Kick League, a 501c3 uh, yeah, nonprofit corporation. Yeah, I
1: know There was some fancy code that, that, number for it, but they run as a business. But I also think, business.
2: and I, but I also think that the baseball, that on the field, they run it a little bit more minor league-ish than some of the other
1: leagues. Right. And the reason they do that, uh, I mean, here in Nashville, they treat the players very well. The transportation's great. You know, they find the housing, the whole bit, they, you know, and the players have really, I've never heard any complaints and obviously the reason they do the minor league stuff is is to uh, attract the fans and give the fans something besides the baseball to enjoy while they're in the stadium. So uh you know it it's it, you know it, it it's surpassed my expectations totally when it first began. No doubt about it. It's really grown.
0: Yeah, this league is certainly Turned it around and we are definitely looking forward to 2023 and you said it you know with a lot of these high school guys coming in and the talent that we've had over the last couple of years it just shows how far the league has come in it's 12 years since 2011 as you said let's go into some specific questions now Howard I'll start with you the Suns are getting a new look in the dugout this summer with Chad Shade being named the manager what are your expect expectations for him this summer
2: well, I think he's going to run the program well. He's right now a graduate assistant coach at at the aforementioned Kansas State, working under Pete Hughes, um, who has connections to the Futures League and New England baseball writ large. It all depends on how, you know his players are going to have to going to have to decide. It's funny I ran into I was covering a high school game yesterday and ran into Kevin Donati, who managed the Suns last year. Um, and he still runs a big baseball training facility in the in Berkshire County. And he was watching a bunch of his players play. And he we were talking. He said the hardest thing that he had to do last year was fit was learn how to run a bullpen. That he had, that was the thing that he had the most trouble with, you know, the entire the entire course of the season. I would imagine that Chad coming out of a college program where he's been been helping coach we'll have much, a much easier time of that. You know, I'm looking, you know, he's got, they've got a vast majority of players this year are Division I kids. Um, so I think they're anticipating maybe, at least on paper, you know, a, a pretty good season. I wait and see, because as we all know, you don't know. For example, that Pittsfield team that that got to the championship game, a couple, the championship series a couple years ago, would not have put my mortgage that they would have gotten there, but that team just had it, and you know, and were one pitch away from winning the title up in Vermont.
1: Yeah, I felt the same way about Nashville midway through the year last year, and and look what happened. You don't know, you know, and and also because there may be that one kid that catches lightning in a bottle and just all of a sudden starts to really uh, progress for you during the second half of a year and and can carry you, uh, and the chemistry and everything else. Plus, you know, Howard, I don't know. I mean, there are guys out there that get picked up late in the year before they freeze the rosters that make a difference too. You know, Nashville back in 2015, 16, and 17, picked up a couple of those guys and 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 ended up winning. You know, they were very key down the stretch. And, and you know, so the rosters change a lot. And managing a bullpen in this league is different, is unlike doing it anywhere because some of these teams have a ton of pitches to start the year and you don't know. You've got to sort them out. They have to weed themselves out and you've got to figure out, okay, now some of them have come with stipulations from their college coaches. Others are like, okay, we'll use them whatever way we can. And it takes a while for things for the dust to settle. And for some of these teams to figure out their pitching um and the ones that do and the ones that have it all figured out towards the end of the year are the ones that that can progress in in the in the tournament and in and, and, and the in the playoffs, but Nashville is down to a reliever having to start the, the deciding game, you know, they ran out of pitchers. So it, it's always it's fun. you never know, you can never bet on anything, although the success that Vermont's had, in their two years in the league, has been in my mind unprecedented. They've just come in and dominate.
2: They have. It's funny. Um, I, you, you have your 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 staff set up, starters, relievers, and all that. And then July 3rd, July twentieth, the college coach calls and said he's thrown enough. He's coming home. He's and done. then you've got. And then you've got to change. And then you've got to change on the fly. I don't know. I remember a a <laughs> Pittsfield Suns team. That um, made it to the playoffs against Worcester, and their starting pitcher in the last game was a fellow named Mike Robards, who was an outfield. Yep. Because they ran, they ran, ran out, ran they out. ran out. They yeah. and he, and I don't root for teams to win and lose, but I wanted that team to win because of the story. Yep. You know, you know, he's playing the outfield. all you know, he comes in, he pitches. Maybe he throws five strong innings that, you know, he gets the win in the biggest game of the year. Story writes itself. But we've seen that, you know, I can remember. Pitchfield had an NECBL team back a while ago. Dan Duquette owned it. Good. And I can remember looking at teams that that he would bring in and say, this team's going to be good. And that team couldn't get out of its way couple of times he had teams with a bunch of, you know, a bunch of guys like from Holy Cross and smaller D1 schools who played really well all year and were in the playoff hunt until the very end. So you really, you know, for most of these kids, the adjustment to the wood bat is the biggest thing. And some that's of them it. adjust, some of them adjust quickly. Some of them don't adjust at all.
1: Yeah. We forget about that. We forget about the wood bat. You know, that's the difference. That's why they're in this league to get the experience with the wood bat too. And we forget about what effect that has on a team, and what effect that has on some of these kids that are hitting, hitting with wooden bats for the first time, maybe ever. You know, so it's it's interesting enough that you bring that up because that is a huge thing that sometimes we forget about, but the coaches don't forget about. Um, and it's a
2: huge thing for pitchers too, Tom, because yeah. because you know all of a sudden, you know, all you know, they can throw on the hands, they can throw they can throw a pitch on the fists that's going to saw off a wood bat or, you know, and not do anything. But if you do that to a guy with, with a composite bat or a metal bat,
1: he's still going to fist that ball maybe into the corner for a double. Yep. It's a lot. It's a lot different. And that's the one thing about this league is the pitchers pitching the contact coming inside, doing things like that without, you know, a lot of them are afraid to do that in this league you know they're afraid to do it in any level but in this league especially when they first get in there they want to blow up by you and and try to impress the scouts that way rather than pitch you know rather than strategize when they're on the mound so i think it's going to be interesting to see the time of games this year right we're used to the pitch clock now with the major leagues and we're getting used to it the, the time of games in this league have, hasn't been bad over the last few years but like any league it always bogs down around the seventh inning
2: it does i think a lot of the d1 schools have pitch clocks in their leagues so i think the, at least the pitchers are used to throwing more rapidly and yep. hopefully you know i can't imagine that this league is ever going to go to a pitch clock because i can't imagine that anybody can really afford to put them in and that's hire just the, the cost personnel to do it
1: yeah right um
2: but you know i think a lot of the pitchers are more used to throwing quickly
1: what about the future, no pun intended, in this league? When I started to cover it, four teams, Martha's Vineyard, Torrington, Seacoast in New Hampshire, which is and, and Nashua. Martha's Vineyard is still alive in the NACBL, but the other two franchises are gone, and Nashville is the lone remaining one. Then all of a sudden, after two or three years, it increased to 10. It went up to six, then to 10. Uh, and Pistigl was part of that. And then I think they got too big and allowed too many uh, franchises in that couldn't sustain themselves and then have had to go back the other way. And now are at eight. Again, it's got to be the right fit in terms of the ownership group. It's got to be something sustainable and it's got to be something, I think, with a good facility. Because that's the one thing that separates this league from some of the other leagues. The You know, the majority of the teams in this league, the majority, not all, but the majority play in good stadiums.
2: In minor, minor league,
1: ball, minor, in, league in, ballparks.
2: minor league ballparks. And even as old as Wakanda Park has been, you know, it's unlike, and I'll compare... I, it's probably big. its biggest comparison would be both Field and Westfield, but at least Wakona Park has history. And in two years, when you come back down to visit, um, there will likely be a brand new grandstand because right. they're in a the process of making, of doing a major study, uh, you know, of what they want to do. Do they want to renovate it or do they want to tear it down and start over again? That will be determined probably sometime during the course of this season. But on them, I will say that they they managed last summer to to make chicken salad out of chicken poop, um, considering that, you know, in April, uh, they found out they could not use the grandstand. They put in some ble you know, the bleacher sections they put in foul territory are the coolest seats anywhere in college <laughs> baseball. Yeah, you, you it's it's like you can look down and see the tonsils of the hitter and it's real i've sat in those a couple of times just for fun and it's really it's a really really cool seat.
0: yeah the league has certainly seen its fair share of good facilities over the years and yes wakona park may be a little you know rundown but it's it's historic and we love having it in the league of course and for you guys you've been part of the league obviously, as I mentioned, since it's beginning here, when Pittsfield joined and Tom, you said in 2011, what have been your best stories and best memories from covering the Futures League? Well, I'm just going to oh, go to
2: I'm last. Just...
1: Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Howard. You uh, go ahead. I'm just
2: going to go to, la- I'm going to go to, la- I'm going to go to last year. Um, when the, um, when the Brockton rocks came to town and si- and signed a young man for one day, um, he has sent it, um, he has since passed on, but, um, that was one of the great days, uh, you know, that, that I had been around.
1: I would have to say, uh, oh, this, this is tough. Um, you know, the first night of this league was, you know, wasn't in Nashville. wasn't a big deal. You know, there may be 200 people in the stands. It was drizzly. It was rainy the whole bit. Um, of course, for me, of course, Tom, how could I forget Tom King Bobblehead Night? Right, that that's that's got to be a huge memory for me. But I'll tell you what, the best game I've seen is last year's championship game. There's two that stand out. There is a there was a a game in the finals. I believe the year was 2016 when Nashville was down to its final strike. With two outs and nobody on. And Mickey Gasper, who right now is in AAA with the Yankees, was down 0-2 and worked a walk. And then Ryan Sullivan hit a hit a two-run homer to tie the game against Worcester in the opening night of the finals at Holman Stadium. That's one huge memory. Nashville went on to win. They won that night, and they won they won an extra innings that night and on a play. Close play at first base, in which I thought the the national runner was out. He wasn't. They called him safe. Um, And the other, for me, had to be, and, I, I, you know, there's a lot of, uh, obviously, tons of stories in this league, and Howard's is is very emotional. Mine are more, I, I, I guess, in tune with what's going on on the field. And last year's championship game in Vermont, Uh, the whole series after game one, which was a blowout, the whole series was, was really something else. But last year Nashua is in Vermont and uh, they're down, they're down a run going in top of the ninth. Vermont's got its best pitcher on the mound to close it out. And Nashua gets a two run home run to, to, to take the lead. And, and, You know, and then Vermont Vermont loads the bases in the bottom of the ninth with their best hitters up and two pop-ups to end the game. And I'm right next to Chris English, who's the owner of Vermont, who used to own the National Pride, the Independent League team, and uh, he was just stunned. Uh, The emotion in that game, uh, to me, it was a watershed mark for the national franchise uh, because the ownership, I think, for the first time, because the, the owners, the owner owns two teams. He owns Worcester, which I always think that is his baby because that's his, that was his original team. I think for the first time, he really became the national owner on that night, and uh, and that because he was just, I mean, incredibly happy, uh, and just thrilled that they had a fan bus come up and everything else. And I think that that was a fresh in my mind. Yes. But for me, that was one of the biggest memories that I'll take away, uh, you know, after whenever I'm done covering this league that night in Vermont, that Friday night in Vermont, uh, I think it was August 11th or 12th was, uh, was certainly a big memory.
2: What is it about that? I've been, I've been to Centennial field more times than I care to count between a championship game in the futures league and all the years that the expos were in the New York Penn League and they would play the old Pittsfield Mets in games and I would always go ah, up to
1: the Pittsfield Mets. Yeah. <laughs>
2: whenever there was an when whenever they opened, I would go up there. But it's funny, the championship game in 2021 had the same kind had the same kind of buzz because that was the year that again we talked about how vermont has dominated the league they they ran rough over the oh. over the league that year and they Destroy. end up and they end up playing a pittsfield team in the championship series that was down to a bunch of guys from schools like nichols you know all small div all the small division three schools in new england and it was an it was an ace versus ace. Um, arguably one of the one of the best pitchers has been in the league the last three years has been uh Pittsfield's Isaiah Mestry. And it was a pitch for pitch. Nobody could get anything done. Finally, you know, Vermont eked out a couple of runs. Um, top of the ninth. It's a one run game. The um winning run is at first base and, and they can't, and they can't, and Pittsfield cannot push it around. And it was just one of those great baseball nights at, you know, Bill Lee was in the house in Burlington. Wow, yeah, And, and I, and I, and I remember talking to him for something else and he's saying, so what team are you rooting for here? Your adopted hometown, which would, which is boring cause he lives in Vermont or the place where you pitched in Double A for two years with the Pittsfield Red Sox. Yeah. And you know and and obviously he was rooting for them up but he had a lot he had several got several friends who eventually f- who played on that double A team who settled in Pittsfield and you know we had long conversations about them. But somehow that that series in Vermont. You know and that that was with the team just that Pittsfield team just kind of got on a roll and I don't know if the last if you last time you were in town but they're, going back to um one of the pro, one of the independent pro teams they had an, an indian head on a on a pedestal that was outside the ballpark and they would take it on the road in the playoffs because it was it became their good luck it not became really kind not. of their good luck talisman
1: i the thing about centennial field it's the fans they packed the place You know, that's a very popular team. And I don't know what the New York Penn League team drew, how they drew. I imagine they drew pretty well. Because, look, you're in an area area its you know, I don't want to say isolated. I mean, that was the first time I'd ever been there, you know. And for the three-and-a-half-hour drive, it it may be a little while (laughs) until I go there again. Uh, The All-Star game, I know, is going to be there this year. Uh, But it's the fans there. You know, the fans are really into it. They are really into it there. And I think that that's a, I mean, it's a gold mine. It really is. You know, and it, I was it, it was a and great I'm, coup for the league to get that franchise.
2: It is. You know, and because, I'm surprised they did. I was, you know, I'm surprised that it has been as successful in the sense that the people there were really angry when major league right. baseball contracted teams right. and the Vermont and the Lake Monsters were one of the teams that were contracted. Um and same there was talk... with
1: the Lowell Spinners.
2: Yeah. And and over and, and across and just across the border in Troy, New York, the same thing with the Tri-City Valley Cats. Yes. Um but my hometown, I, I'm surprised that I was surprised they didn't go independent pro to start just because they were so used to the one thing. And then would would the community that had been so used to high-caliber professional baseball in the New York Penn League take to this level of baseball? And the fact that they have tells me all I need to know about the people in Burlington.
1: But you have to remember something, too, Howard. We get a little carried away, I think, in, with the New York Penn League. Obviously, the caliber is a little bit is better. But a lot of the players, same age, right?
2: Not much older. No, absolutely not much
1: older. So these are kids that are draft. So the, in other words, and Vermont has done a great job of getting good players. So I think th- there's a couple of things. One, you have you're hard pressed if you if you talk to fans as they're leaving or coming into the ballpark. Some of them in the Futures League, they think they're watching pro kids. They don't know. They're just here to see a baseball game and be entertained. So a lot of them aren't, you know, the diehards, the season ticket holders, the whole bit, they know the deal. You know, the people who read you and I, they know the deal. But the casual fan doesn't know the deal. And the casual fan in Vermont, will say, and a casual fan in Nashville will say, there's a game tonight, it's a beautiful night, let's go to the ballpark. See what I mean? They won't know. They don't know. Oh, and I think, you know, and I think that's,
2: you know, that's the the charm of it. And I think that is why the, why, you know, the league, the teams in this league all, you know, they do a lot more of the minor league entertainment game stuff. Than you see elsewhere, and I think That's that helps. And that helps also,
1: right? The fans that are going to Vermont to get all that entertainment—they don't know the difference because they, it's the same stuff they've always seen. It's the and same. And Tuesday night
2: day. dollar hot dog night, right?
1: Because, which, day.
2: which, which, which my my oldest child who lives in Winooski will go because she loves dollar hot dog night.
1: There you go. Yep. So. I do too, especially when it comes into the press box on Holden. But I I can't eat a lot of those hot dogs these days. <laughs> no, no, not good for me.
0: Yeah, hot dog That's, hysteria in Vermont is real. They they love yeah. it up
1: there. Oh, they love it up there. I mean, I I I got there maybe when I went last year for about the first. I got there about forty five minutes for the first pitch, and I just kind of took a walk around the ballpark. You could tell the fans. The food, the whole bit, they were there to just enjoy the whole night and enjoy the entertainment, and uh, I was i was quite taken with the place.
0: Yeah, it's an incredible bar park, and they're doing a great job in Vermont. And as you guys said, those are two great stories to have. Last year's championship was unbelievable, and Howard, you talked about Evan Franz, the one-day contract for the Rocks last year. It was an incredible story, and, and we love being part of that here in the Futures League. And I want to ask you guys generally here, one thing about summer ball in the league is obviously these guys are coming in and trying to develop their craft each year when they, when they join these teams, how important do you believe the futures league and other summer ball leagues are to these players and to have for these players to go back to school, uh, hopefully better players at the end of the day?
1: Oh, uh, I think it's big. And, but I think the funny thing Owen and Howard is that when these guys get here, they don't know what to expect. A lot of them, they're not sure. Okay, are they here to just kind of just play baseball and enjoy the summer, and or are they here to play serious baseball and try to win? And I think when they're doing the latter, that's when they develop more as players, because when they're here just to say, okay, I played this summer. In- you know, I, you know, satisfied. You know, almost like satisfying the quarter for their coach. You know, yes, coach, I played summer ball, but if you go to a franchise, that says, "Hey, you're here to play, but you're also here to win because that's what we want to do." And it's a fine line in these summer leagues for a lot of these franchises to figure out what they want their players to do, and and or for the and for the players to figure out what they want to do and what they want to get out of playing summer ball. And I think for some franchises, they'll just come and play for other franchises. They know they'll come and play. uh, But they know that if they want to keep playing and, you know, kind of showcase themselves a little bit, you know, they play to win. And that's, that's the, I think that's the best way to do it. And that's how they go about it. And I think that's why these leagues are important. I mean, the leagues are scouted. Now the draft is a little different now. The draft is a little later, so uh, it may make a difference maybe uh, here and there. To, you know, obviously there's kids drafted every year out of this league, um, but they're not drafted early, so they don't have to make a big decision whether to sign or not. So they're, they're, you know, I think for these kids, if they come in with the attitude that it's serious and they want to play it, which isn't easy for them to do, because they're college kids. It's summertime. No class, no school. You know, they can enjoy life a little bit. No pressure in terms of their college season to try to produce in a conference tournament, things like that. But when they get here in Nashua, they find out, well, you know what? You're here to play ball, but you're also here to win. And that's the mentality that they try to produce. And I think that the kids get more out of that than they do if they just come to, you know, play an occasional game every two or three days
2: what's really you bring that the way you, you mentioned that what, the way I look at it it's it's a calendar thing I think for when the season starts in late May through much of June it's pretty much a we're playing and having fun the calendar flips it's the first week of July it's almost July 10th the teams kind of know who's good and who isn't and I think that's where you find if you're if you think your team's got a shot that you you know that you really kick it in um and, and the teams that aren't playing quite as well kind of just start running out the string i'll
1: give you a perfect example with Nashville last season it was around june 28th 29th somewhere around there they had to play a doubleheader with Worcester. I think it was Worcester, and it was a uh, one of them was a makeup. So the first game was at uh, I think three or four. I think it was at three. First games at three, three thirty, and it's a hot sunny day, not much wind. Uh, the last place that anybody wanted to be, I think, for for Nashville was on a baseball field, and the first game, they played like it. And they got beat. It was it was over with by I think they got they got mercy ruled. So the game was over early. Now Kyle Jackson, the national manager, former you know former Red Sox farmhand, he's always he, he's a big teacher with these kids in, in terms of how they play and how they but he also gives them a lot of rope and saying you you know it's up to you to learn it's up to you to figure it out. He went to them. After that game, he's not a yeller. He's not a screamer. But but he's a teacher, and he went to them and he said, "Guys, we can do this one of two ways. You can come here, relax, just the way I described it before. Play whenever you want to play. You know, and uh, you know we'll do it that way." and you can get results like this and look like this in front of, in front of, you know, there weren't, there weren't many people in the park at that time. Cause it was early in the day. You can look, you can look like that in front of the fans, or you can take this seriously. You can go out there and you can play to win and you can play your best every night. How do you want to do it? Well, they came out the next they came out the second game. They won that game and they went on a streak and that, that propelled them to, to the playoffs. But, They had to make that decision, just like you said, Howard, at that particular time, the end of June. What do we want to be? And that's a big deal for these kids. Uh, That's the way when Matt Gedman was
2: the manager in Pittsfield, he ran ran his team. And that is why they were always a really, even if they weren't a contender, always a really tough out at the end of July. Uh, You didn't want to have to play his team's at that point because you knew you were going to get, you know, a, a real effort. We've seen games like when there are teams that are 10 games out of the last playoff spot who are really just kind of mailing it in. And that's what you don't want to have. You don't want to have to see. And I think the best managers in this league are the guys who can push those right buttons.
1: Yeah, That's it. And get into the mentality of the kids and take themselves back to when they were their age and they were young looking to get drafted looking to get scouted and things like that. And try to try to get into the minds of these kids and, and get them thinking that way. And I think it works, but I mean, they, you know, Mm -hmm. look, it's summer ball. You got to give them that kind of choice.
2: Which is why I'm looking forward to what happens this summer here. Because I've I've known Chad Shade since he's three years old. Um, I work with I work with his dad at one of the Pittsfield radio stations, and we go back we go back a long way. And he was always as a high school player, and as a college player, and in his two years that he spent with the Suns, arguably as as hard a playing player, if that is a proper phrase, as, as anybody. I mean. Um, you know, the year – he was a, a two-sport guy at Springfield College and really busted up his leg badly playing football. He was there – he was the quarterback in a triple-option offense. So you can imagine what right. happens to quarterbacks on that. But the next summer, you know, he was there, and even though he couldn't play because he was still recovering from the surgery, was, it, was in the dugout every day, you know – being you know being being part of the team and i think and i suspect that that is what's going to translate with this team this summer whether or not they can win games will depend on the kids in the uniforms and whether they can hit the curveball but we'll fi- but we'll find out yeah, but i think it. they will be th- they will be a team that doesn't doesn't not play you know 9 innings every day
1: Trouble with the curve. That's the whole, that's the whole key.
0: Yep. Yeah, and you talk about all these kids that, you know, talked about Shade, who's played in the league for a couple years, and the New England baseball scene, and how it's produced so much talent. And that's evident in the Futures League by guys playing in the big leagues like Jeremy Pena and Jason Boshler, Aaron Savali. We mentioned Chris Shaw earlier. What is it like to cover those guys in the Futures League, in college, or even in high school as early as then, and seeing what they've become, and seeing these guys make
2: the majors and and just see what they make of their baseball career. Well, let me start with a guy who didn't play very long in Pittsfield and didn't play the, didn't play what he's known for now. And that's um, the Washington nationals, Cade Cavalli first round draft pick um, out for the year with Tommy John. Um, Heard hurt, hurt his elbow at, at training camp when he came to Pittsfield. Um, he was, I think he threw like two innings and he was primarily a DH in the third baseman. Cause that, cause he couldn't throw, cause he had just come off of a big, big bat, bat problem. But now here he is argue, you know, arguably the number one, at least until before his surgery, the number one pitching prospect in, in the league, in the, in the nationals organization. And I tried, I, I catch up to him. The last couple of years, I was able to catch up to him twice in Worcester, when he was at AAA Rochester, and just you know, he hasn't really changed as as a kid. He's still somewhat, you know, somewhat still, still somewhat quiet and all that, but you know, he was fun to have around in the short time he was in Pittsfield, and now you know, now he's on the cusp. But it's just funny because he never. really – and i'm sure you know i don't know if tom remembers but he never really pitched here he no. you know he threw a, he, he had like two or three out two two outings in relief spent most of his time either playing third base or dhing which he liked doing more you know cuz pitching is work and he, you know he just loved in the summer to come out and swing the bat but now here he is you know hopefully he will recover and now that tommy john surgery is so e- relatively easy hopefully he'll come back better
1: Different for me, Shaw is a big player, and and but Nashville hasn't had many, uh, you know, anybody reach that kind of level. The closest one now is Mickey Gasper, who in my mind is the best two strike hitter I've ever seen. He was the team's, he was the league's uh, offensive, NBA, offensive player of the year in in 2016. Uh, the thing with Mickey is uh, a position defensively. He's small, catcher build has worked a lot on his catching skills, which really weren't honed in when he was with Nashville. They, they, they moved him around catcher here first base there DH here. And now he's in Scranton or not. Yeah. He's in Scranton with the Yankees. And uh, it's a question now of where, what, you know, I, I, look, he could get a phone call with the way, you know, if, if they have catching issues, you get a phone call and, and, and be up to the majors in a heartbeat. And he's a local kid. He's a, he doesn't live, his family's not around here anymore. They lived it. they were, he, you know, I watched him, I covered him in, in high school when he played in, in Merrimack, New Hampshire. So, um, Pena, I remember briefly, but he only played a couple of games at Holman Stadium. And, I mean, he wasn't with Nashua. Um, but it's amazing to, to see. With, look, I go back to it, again, I'll go back to it. A four-team league, right? Four teams in 2011 in the summer of 2011 season was over with by like August I mean the finals were over with by August 4th or whatever who would have thought that you would have you know a national an NLCS MVP playing out of, you know who played in the Futures League back then you never would have thought that never this was a D2 again a D a majority of the players in this league were D3 kids and, you know, it was a place for them to play where they, you know, they couldn't make any other college profession, uh, any other college league. So to see something like this, he is absolutely my it's mind boggling. I, I never would have expected it uh, 12 years ago.
2: And what's and the funniest thing about our conversation today is that the is that Pittsfield and Nashua are so incredible. Over the course of the baseball lifetime, are so incredibly linked together. So
1: tied, it's. I, yeah. I wrote a column about it a few years ago. It's unbelievable.
2: It, just for the people who don't know, um, going back to when um, Pittsfield had a team in the NECBL, Dan Duquette decided to give his uh, decided to sell a portion of it to a group of guys who owned the independent league team in Nashua. Right. And they at that time, I believe they were the Nashua defend American Defenders. Yeah, they didn't. They last the full season. Well, no, but but they they bought the Pittsfield team and changed the name in Pittsfield to the Pittsfield American Defenders uh, for their last right. year in the NECBL. The next year, I believe they were locked out of your stadium in in Nashua and ended up moving the team to Pittsfield, right. where they became the where, where they became the Pittsfield Colonials for 2 years and i have long argued that the best baseball writ large i've ever seen were those 2 years because they were grown ups playing the game um i'm sure you uh, you must remember jared edmondson uh from new hampshire argued maybe yeah. the best hitter i ever saw at Wakona. Yeah. he he and um he and jay payton with the mets maybe the two best two best bats i've ever seen So then two years they they fold up and then a year and then like two years later, Pittsfield's in the in the futures league with Nashua again. We are in extreme I'll go one further. The the year when the going back to nineteen eighty-five, the Pittsfield Cubs, the Chicago Cubs moved their double A team to Pittsfield. And Nashua
1: had the Nashville Pirates.
2: Their first series was against Nashua. And the an opening day was a day game, six thousand people at Wakona Park. They they had a wow. parade up North Street, with with the players, all that. The next they played the next night. It's it's New England. It's April. It's thirty degrees, <laughs> and they're and I remember the Pirates relief pitchers made a fire in the bullpen. In a, in a in a in in one of those big metal garbage cans to stay warm, and all I can remember is in the post game, Felix Fermin in the Nashville clubhouse, kept saying, "It's cold," which I think is all he knew at the time. But it was frigid. So what? Pittsfield and Pittsfield and Nashville have been part of baseball in New England. You know, been kind of like, you know, members of the same family forever.
1: Right, with two historic parks. And that's, you know, and that's that's the other thing that links them, you know, the links them, They're the two most historic ballparks in New England. So it, it's been that way. Uh, and, it, yeah, the, the, the defenders, they, it was just a fail. To, it, they bought the National Pride, who had been, uh, you know, basically in an independent league. It's It's, to bring it back into the context of the Futures League, it depends on the business model. The independent league model is not very good for New England because you've got to be able to pack the place to the the hilt of three to four thousand a night just to break just to break even because of the workman's comp and the insurance and everything all the all the overhead for an independent league team that you don't have for a summer collegiate league team. So Nashua, after the Defenders we're, we're locked out. And that's another story for another, for another, for another show, for another podcast. But, but, um, the next year night, uh, it, it, the next year in 2010, there was no team in Nashua, you know, no, no team at Holman stadium. Uh, and drew Weber, the owner of the Lowell spinners, decided to have a expo, you know, where fans could come and meet the players and and sign up for tickets and things like that. And uh, what they did, uh, I talked to Drew Weber, and Drew Weber said to me, he said, I can promise you there'll be a team in Nashua here next year. And I'm like, okay, what's it going to be? Because at the time, we never thought a summer collegiate league team would, would work here. And sure enough, Drew Ever—that's what he did. The Spinners decided to put one there, and and the 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 general manager Tim Ballman of the Spinners, the president, was lived right down the street from me. He lives, you know, he, well, he used to live just a little ways down, and uh, so you know that that's how it all evolved.
3: Hold on, we'll get right back to back to the futures, but first we want to share a message from our friends at Seventy Eight Sports. Do you have kids playing baseball or softball? We all know practice time is limited, especially here in New England. Not to mention the cost of lessons and cage time can add up very quickly. Save yourself time and money by giving your kids what they need to work on their game at home. Our friends at 78 Sports can help you put together the perfect at-home training setup. Whether you want to start small with just a tee and a net or looking to set up a full cage with turf and a pitching machine, they have you covered. And I've used their stuff before. I've seen their facilities. They definitely cover everything. The team at 78 Sports design and install hundreds of at-home and commercial sports training facilities, so let them help you find the perfect setup for your space. Visit the 78 Sports website at 78sports.com, that's S-E-V-E-N-T-Y, the number 8, sports.com. For a limited time only, by just mentioning Back to the Futures, you'll receive a 10% discount off your order. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-Y, number eight sports.com. Now back to your regularly scheduled programming.
0: All right. I want to transition here. We talked a lot about the Futures League, which is great, but I want to transition into your guys' backgrounds and ask specifically. We talked about best stories in the Futures League, but I want to ask about what was your best or your favorite story that you've ever done in your in your uh, illustrious careers.
1: Oh boy. <laughs> You're talking to somebody who's covered ten Super Bowls. I know. So that's that's gonna be it. Yeah. You know, I mean, overall, you lump them all together. I never thought I'd be able to do one, and I've done ten. Uh, you know, thanks to the companies, you know, the two companies that own the, the paper agreed to send me and everything else. So, I'd say, you know, covering covering those. Uh, I mean, multiple high school ch- – you know, I, I, a lot of high school stuff and everything else, and then uh, and some small college. Um, I, I have a more of a limited area than Howard does. Howard expands a little bit. Um, but I would say those things, as well as covering the Independent League National Pride with Butch Hobson as the manager, uh, probably the 2000 uh, season – uh, the best, I would argue the best professional season that Nashua baseball season that Nashville has ever seen. Uh, I would say that that year was, uh, was magical in terms of baseball. They won the, the championship. They played at the, uh, the, the championship was won in Somerset, New Jersey, uh, Somerset Township, that area, Bridgewater, New Jersey was, is the actual location. Um, The Somerset Patriots who are now an affiliated ball uh, as the Yankees double A team. But that, that year covering Butch Hobson as the national pride manager who I had covered a few games with when he was the Red Sox manager. um, Doing those, doing that. And, uh, uh, and then, you know, I obviously the futures league, you know, those, those things, but, Ten Super Bowls, uh, I I don't I, I just for me I'm almost speechless at covering those because um, I I was in awe every year. You always think, oh, it's old hat, you know. You're doing all the time, you know. It's not a big deal. It's what's what's one, you know. I mean, if you you know the first one, obviously, I was as just enamored and thrilled to be covering. Those those Super Bowls uh, with the Patriots playing, as I you know, year ten, which was in Atlanta back in 2019, uh, and as I was in year one, which was the Bill Parcells Super Bowl when he coached when he took the Patriots to the Super Bowl in uh, in 19 in, uh, in February of 19 January February of 1997. So you put all that stuff together, and uh, that's that's probably it never
2: been to a World, never been to a super bowl. Um, if if I'm professional highlighting it like that, the being at Fenway when the Red Sox won in 2013 was pretty spec was pretty spectacular. Um, it was the first time I had been there for a clinching game because the two previous world series that I could get to that I was credentialed for ended on the road. Right. And, and I was, and, the company would let me go, but wouldn't let me tra- would not let me travel like that. And I could understand that. Um, right. The I was at the at the final um, NCAA Division One Final Four played in an arena, uh, which was in New Jersey, when when UMass played. Uh, when Calipari's team with Marcus Camby played there. The next year, they started playing in football stadiums. Right, indoor indoor stadiums, But one of my favorite things that I've done happened during the pandemic year when everything was shut down. And as I'm sure you were, Tom, you were looking for things to do. I ended up doing an oral history of the first time Division three Williams went to the final four. I talked to their coach. I talked to the opposing coach. I talked to a bunch of players on both teams and, and didn't write a story. Did a, you know, just ran quotes and stuff. And it was one of, and I learned things that I, that I didn't really know. I was talking to one player who was, who was regaling me on a story during from their, um, I believe it was their Elite Eight game in that they played in Williamstown. And this player is now, I, th- I believe, the Corporation Counsel for the City of New York and had been a U- an assistant U.S. attorney involved in prosecuting um, mob and drug guys. So, you know, <clears throat> most of those guys, you know, who go to those kind of schools, go off and, yeah. as the NCAA likes to joke, you know they they go off and turn professional in something other than their sport, but as, it, as, the, cheer,
1: as the cheer goes, that's all right, that's okay. You'll all work for us
2: someday, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he was telling me, said so, you know they were playing a team that they had played like the year before, yep. and had beaten them on the road, and there and I don't I didn't remember the little layup line pregame altercation where there was a little bit of pushing and shoving and a lot of talking. And this, and I believe it was Rowan University. Um And Williams ended up beating them and go and went to the, and ended up going to the final four. And the interviews I had with players, you know, 96, 97, you know, like almost 30 years later. And these guys still remember everything. Yeah. I barely remember what I had for breakfast. Yeah, exactly. But too many but so many of these athletes will remember plays, will remember pitches. I've t- you know, and the other thing I remember on the field stuff was the night that the Pittsfield Mets won the nineteen ninety-seven New York Penn League Championship on a walk-off pinch hit base hit by a player named Kevin McCarthy, third round pick of the Mets. He retired after that game. <laughs> it, it, not when he you're was, on top, right? His well, his career had been like, you know, he was a low two hundred hitter through his entire Mets career. And the and I've not been able to talk to him. I have tried a couple of times to reach out, never got back to it, and so forth. But he said I was told, said, what am I what am I going to do that's better than hitting a
1: walk-off to win a championship? The one local story that I always keep remembering that I did. And uh, this is kind of pretty much run up your alley, Howard, but your division three schools are a little bit more established. Uh, When Riviere went co-ed in the early nineties, a Riviere university in Nashua. And there was also Daniel Webster college. Both schools decided to go all in NCAA, D3, and they didn't quite know how to do it. I think Riviera knew how to do it more than Daniel Webster did. And Daniel Webster was ahead of Riviera in doing it. And, um, you know, that was kind of my – you know, you cover a lot of high school stuff, and I hadn't really gotten into the – that hadn't started covering the Patriots, things like that yet. Uh so all those years in the '90s and early 2000s, I was trying to to kind—I of, don't want to say—you know, you know, you know publicize. I was trying to to get people interested in in what these athletes could do because a whole new level. And Howard, you'll agree with this: of Division Three, and this plays right into the Futures League. Division Three sports—a whole new level has cropped up over the years, right? with a lot of these others with a lot of these small colleges upgrading their athletic programs major factor i think in supplying the the futures league with a lot of players over the years but in 2007 i decided i wanted to do a day in the life of a small college athlete no no scholarship you know they 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 had to go to class right they had to go to class. They had to get good grades. The whole bit, and so I followed this kid. It was a basketball player. His name was Jeff Carpenter. I followed him all around. Uh, it was uh, it was President's Day, uh, but they but it was but the school they had school that day. There was no holiday for them. And you know, I went to his met him in his dorm at at eight o'clock in the morning. I think it was five below. <laughs> And I went through and sat in on three classes and the feeling that I had, and then I went through the three classes. I went, ate lunch with them. I ate dinner with them. I I went to the, you know, and then his practice was at night and it ended at 1030. So his day went all the way through and they were in, they were in the the, uh, GNAC tournament that year and they won it. And it was, uh, they won the conference, the Great Northeast Athletic Conference and went to the NCAAs where they got pummeled by Keene State, but it was the best season Riviera uh, University basketball has ever had. They haven't come close to it since. Um, But I remember sitting in the 4 o'clock class and the same feelings that I got when I was a student was like, okay, when is this class going to end so I can get out of (laughs) here? It was the same feeling. You know, I, it all came back to me, but I'll never forget uh, doing that. It was it was a fun story to do, and uh, I enjoyed it very much. And it was very enlightening too, see what these kids go through. One of my favorite all time, it's I did it several times. Was as
2: Williams College is a preeminent basketball power in Division three. Yes, and I have been to five Final Fours with them, and the best part of the weekend is the way the way they had done it for decades is teams would, would arrive on on Wednesday at in Salem Virginia where the final four had been for like 25 years and Wednesday they would get you, you know when Thursday they would practice at the civic center and then do media and take a team picture and all that and the best part of the week is the is Thursday the media day is also the first day in the NCAA tournament, the Division I tournament. Right. And there's nothing as much as as much fun as watching college basketball with college basketball players. Because they get what's going on, even though right. they're at a different, a completely different level. And it was always the best part of the weekend is spending Thursday in the press room because there were like four TVs set up. And watching all the different, it was watching all the different games.
1: Well, there's a lot of different things that we've been, you know, able to see and do and everything else. And, and uh, it's, uh, you you know, you, you, I, I, you know, you never take it for granted. That's for sure.
2: And people ask and people, because I am not a teenager anymore. I get asked frequently, when are you going to stop? And I say, well, the two things I say, one is, Something my wife always says, Why would I quit now I know what I'm doing? Yeah. <laughs> and, but the other part of it is, and it goes directly to what we've been talking about most of the time, is I get to watch kids play games. You know, even, even Chris Sale as a kid, you know, relatively speaking, I get to watch, I get to watch people play games for a living. We all, we all work hard. Our deadlines have changed over the years because of you know, of the media and what we do. Fortunately, um, I think unlike your paper, my deadline is still like 11 o'clock at night, so we get most everything that we cover during the course of a day in. Um, But we all work really hard at what we do, but ultimately you get to go to a Super Bowl, you get to go to a World Series, you get to go to a state championship game, you get to go cover a Futures League championship game. It's not that's not work no it's it's not not rocket
1: science either right it's not oh god oh god (laughs) i always tell people i'd never make it in corporate america (laughs) you know so no that's just it you know and for me now it's changed because i we're online uh and we only have you know basically we we have a weekly now uh that i produce the content for early in the week i get all that done And my focus now is putting together the online section and covering everything locally uh, online. And um, uh, you know, it's uh, if I had to go back to a deadline, it it would be. It's been three years. It would be an adjustment. There's no question about it. You know, it would be an adjustment. I remember. I think it was the Valley News asked me one night a couple of years ago. Yeah, can you get us a story by 8:30? And I was like, "Um, yeah, you know, because I was helping them out. You know, when one of their teams was down here, we were trading trading stories, Valley News up in, in the Hanover Lebanon area, right near the Vermont border. And uh it was I was like, I gotta think about that. Can I do that? You know, do I have enough time? Things like that. So it's it's a little different for me now. It's interesting because I think I think only
2: the globe has a later deadline than we do in Massachusetts. I could be wrong about that. Yeah, I know. I know the Herald's got a really early deadline for their print product, and everything else is online. Um, you know, we got lucky five or six years ago. You and I have talked about this before. We got lucky several years ago. We were sold by, by one of those big, you know, hedge fund chains. Right, and we're now locally owned. Yep, and the people who you know, and they want us to be, you know the best we could the best small paper in America, which you know, and maybe win a Pulitzer Prize like the Eagle did 40 years ago for its for its editorial policies. Um but I'm I am fortunate in that regard. You know everything is instant online, but we still have a print product that our ownership cares about.
1: Yeah. And that's the big that's a that's that's huge. Definitely. So the coverage of the Futures League has definitely changed. From my standpoint, I used to stay at the stadium an hour, hour, hour and a half, after hour after a game, and get a you know story and write as the game goes on. And now I don't do that. Now I just come home and do it and and then post it, uh, and it it shows up on the website at uh, after midnight. Um, and that's how that's how things are done now. Um, uh, and it worked out for me covering Vermont. The vermont game the final game because i didn't have to write it right away i got back in the car and i moved three and a half hours back to nashville i think i went to bed around four in the morning but i uh, got everything you know everything done in terms of the story and the whole bit and got back here around 1 one thirty and was able to write and and you know and, and give it and give it justice you know give it what it what it needed uh and uh you know that's that's one that's the only advantage i can see right now is with the online i i do miss the daily the daily newspaper I, I miss the daily paper i i still get a globe i still get it in my hands every morning and read it although it's a lot of its feature content because uh, you know the, their deadlines are so early for the edition that we get here in Nashville. so uh but that's you know and, and you know the other the other uh paper closest to us, the Manchester union leader, their deadlines are notoriously early. I mean, uh, you know, they're barely able to get anything that happens the night before in the print product that arrives here in Nashville. So uh, that, that's, that's gives us, that in, in some ways that gives us an advantage uh, with the online. So, but I do miss the print product. That's for sure
0: yeah the print product is certainly it feels like a thing of the past but it's it's not it's still going it's just it's fading slowly ever so slowly and you guys have talked you guys have talked about it during this episode plenty but not only do you cover of course the futures league and the pros but you cover high school sports too and we know how much that means to these students to get in front of you guys to get in front of media members and have their games covered and have themselves in the spotlight even before some of them take it to the next level so what has it meant to both of you to be able to cover cover high school sports and give these kids that chance to get into the spotlight, you know, before they even step foot in college?
1: Well, for me, it's, you know, it's, you know, you oh, and it's, it's different because you're going year to year to year to year, you know, and I've done it. I've been here 37 years and kids that I covered in high school, are now principals, athletic directors, uh, you know, when they get to when they get to be grandfathers, then I know I'm really in trouble, right? So 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 it's different. But the one thing that I have come to realize more so because the kids are names. They're names that you write and it change they change every year, the teams change every year. And you don't, what you have to try to keep in mind is the human element. They're people, they're kids, they're people that you're covering. And and unfortunately, when you're typing up a season preview capsule, you're just typing up a bunch of names. You don't think about the kids and the people that are associated with it. You don't think about the effect of the words that you write and how that feels. And the one thing I think I've come to realize over the last five, six, seven years is how much the community is in tune with what we write when we cover the high school games and how much the coaches and the kids appreciate and look forward to the coverage and look to see if you're there at that game. You know what I mean? And for me... It's a lot different. I'm now a one man department. So one person department. Howard's a member of a staff. I'm a one person department. So when the kids just, when I when I show up and the kids are thinking, you know, this has got to be a big game. And so that's that's lost on me a little bit. Um until these last few years. Because you don't want the names to be just the job, they're people. And you've got to take that into account.
2: We have a philosophy um, to see everyone we can early. And then once we kind of check off the boxes, like in, in the spring, up I'll, I'll, I'm basically the baseball guy. So I'll check off most of the teams or we'll right. check, you know, you know and fa- fortunately we've seen most of the bottom teams, like in the first week or so now, um, and then, as the season goes on, we'll just start showing up at the. I hesitate to use the term "better," but for the teams with the winning records. Yeah, that's teams,
1: what we. Yeah, you you yeah, don't the, you know the, it, once the teams are, are not winning, you you, you know you, you don't cover them that much. You don't see them that much.
2: No, and what the fun, and, and I'll relate a story about you know being out and about with teams. It's maybe eight nine years ago. Little less covering a high school football playoff game, and one of the schools is the local power, and they're playing a Central Mass team in a in a in a semifinal game. So, a kid had fumbled trying to score, and they recovered it, you know, and looked like look curtains. This team ends up coming back and runs out of time to complete the comeback. So I wrote so my story wrote, I wrote, you know, for so and so, it could have been it it looked like it was going to be a really rough afternoon. He fumbled the ball away, blah 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 blah. Turns out he catches a big touchdown pass. They almost win. He talked to me about this. He says, you know, yeah, I fumbled it. It was awful. I had to help come back help make the comeback. Four days later I get an email from a woman, not related to the kid, who said that was awful. You embarrassed the kid. So <laughs> didn't really embarrass, you know. And I and I wrote the kid. I wrote the woman back because I will respond to people who send me critical emails. Oh yeah, who signed them? I will not write an email back to someone who wrote me an email and just said you stink. You shouldn't have written that. If they want to sign their name, right? I will. Re- I will respond. I said. But you do want un- you you do understand that while you know I mentioned that I also mentioned that he did this and he was and it was part of why he was able to do that that he made the big the made the fumble earlier you know and I as I get as I do this longer I tr- I get a little bit more uh sort word I'm looking for uh. A little more sensitive to, you know, calling kids out in print. Yeah. But as I tell people all the time, that's why there's a scoreboard. That's it. You know. You know, <laughs> you, know you win, you you win, you lose. You make mistake. You know, it happens.
1: Right. But the the one thing I'll remember is, uh, uh and Howard, you and I both dabble in the broadcast world as well. And I do games for the local, uh, education channel. And, uh, so we were doing a game and this is when it really hit me. This is when it really hit me. Uh, the impact, uh, a man came up. I didn't, I don't know who he was. I had a headset on and I think, I don't even know if we were, I think we were in a break and we were in a table in the corner. Of, uh, it was a, a Nashville North versus Nashville South game. And he just came up to me and he said, you know, I really want to thank you for all the high school coverage you give these kids. And I don't know who he was. He wasn't, he, he looked older. He looked uh, more like he would be a grandfather than a father uh, of, of one of the players or anything like that. And it just hit me. I mean, think of you and I, of all the kids we've covered, the impact that we've had on these kids lives. How many times, do you and i and i was speechless when the guy said it to me i I just said oh thank you and i i kind of was like wow you know that was that really hit me but think of the impact that we have and i'm not saying this to glorify ourselves but just think it's just it, it is what it is how many kids how many people have walked up to you and said hi that you're like who are you Right, they're kids you covered in in high school, but they're all grown up now. And they go, "Do you, do you remember me?" Like, oh yeah, right, you know, or whatever, you know. And it, it it happens to me all
2: the time. Oh oh yeah, and and of course I'm sure you get the same thing where you're now covering the kids of kids you covered. Yeah, um, oh yeah, which which oh, sure. which is crazy. And the funny yeah. part of that is every once in a while, I will flip flop first names, and I might write, you know. An older brother or sister's
1: name. I do that too. Name. Put the older brother's name in instead of the other kid. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yep. If the 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 one the one good thing
2: about the pandemic was whenever we would go, whenever my wife and I would go grocery shopping, we would wear masks. Right. I still which, do. Which helped me because people didn't recognize me. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't have as many. You know. But but before that, I'll, I'll walk through Stop and Shop. And people will say, what's wrong with you, mess?" Or did you see that Wacona game? Or, or something, you know, and I get that all the time. All the time. time. Yep, all the time.
0: Before we return to Back to the Futures, we want to share a message from our friends at Zorian Bat Company. Rob Zorian started the company, Zorian Bat Company, in 2003, literally out of the trunk of his car in Davie, Florida. Within two years, he was selling his wood bat line to Major League Baseball and continues to manufacture the highest grade wood bats for Litter League, all the way up to the majors. Rob Zorian, founder and president of Zorian, says, I started the company in 2003 to service all baseball players in the United States and beyond, and after 19 years, our mission has not changed. We are very excited to have the opportunity to work with the Futures League and wish all of our players and coaches a healthy and successful season ahead. For more information about Zorian, visit their website, zorianbats.com. Zorian, America's baseball brand. Now, back to Back to the Futures. Yeah, I know those high school kids appreciate that. And those are some good stories. So obviously, Pittsfield and Nashua comes with so much baseball history. So I want to ask you guys, what has baseball meant to Nashua and Pittsfield from your perspective, from covering it from the outside and for being on the field for many of these championships, whether it's high school, college, Futures League, etc.
1: Well, for Nashua, baseball is part of national history here because of it's where the American color barrier was broken with Roy Campanella and Don Newcomb. uh, They played for the Nashville Dodgers. They were the first uh, uh, black professional baseball players to play in, in in, in, you know, affiliated major leagues. So uh, with the Nashville Dodgers minor league team, Uh, at the same time, Jackie Robinson was up in Montreal and uh, they celebrate that history here all the time and uh, the streets uh, entering the stadium are named after Campanella and Newcomb. Uh, there are their, their numbers are on the, the left field wall. There are murals at the, at the entrance of the stadium, of the two of them, that uh, the Silver Knights uh, were instrumental in, in putting up. The Pride did some of the other things. Uh, and so baseball in Nashua is history, and there's – there's always been a a, a big it, – it doesn't exist anymore. But when the pride first came to town, see, baseball in Nashville centers around Holman State. Um, but the people growing up here remember the days in the 50s and the 60s and the 40s when football games drew 10,000 people. They don't do that anymore, not even close, here. Um, and when the baseball, uh, professional baseball team would come in, that would take time away from the high school. So that would, that was always a big debate and ended up leading to the creation of a rectangular facility, two exits down that, you know, can, that's where they play high school football now. And that's what where they should play high school football because the stadium, the turf can't take it. But baseball history here, the it, Holman stadium, I always think needs a team playing in the summer other than just the, 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 the legions and the senior Bay Bruce and those, Types of teams. Um, You put all that together with high school and everything else. And it, you're playing baseball from April to August. And I think it's a big thing for this community to have that entertainment value at Holman stadium from the end of May to the beginning of August. I think it's something that people look forward to. But I also think that for a lot of the people here, they're very proud of the history, and, uh, and, and they celebrate it every, you know, almost all the time. When they come to Holman Stadium, you see those murals, you see what baseball has meant to this city over the years. And I think that that's, that's a, a huge, huge part of Nashville's history as a city. Well, it's not
2: just the city for us. It's, you know, it goes back. Of course, if you believe it or not, the first references of baseball in the 1700s were right. allegedly in Pittsfield. So right. we've got, you've got that. You've got um, two guys from Northern Berkshire County, uh, Frank Grant and Jack Chesborough who are both in the hall of fame. Um we have had major leaguers from Dale Long to Jeff Reardon to Turk Wendell, uh, you know, come come through Pittsfield in Berkshire County. Baseball is as ingrained in the city of Pittsfield as any sport anywhere. And it's not just because of that. Um, I can remember I was covering the team, but but three, four years, 45 years ago, We had a Pittsfield team that went to that was one pitch away from going to the Little League World Series when every one of their regional games was on one of the ESPN networks from Bristol. One of uh, the the downtown movie theater opened up a screen and showed the games for free. And everyone, and I am told because I since I was in Bristol and couldn't be there, every one of those were capacity crowds. The, you know, you win a championship in baseball. Uh, you get you get a you get a fire truck ride through downtown Pittsburgh. Um Those That's a big kids, deal. those kids were here. Those kids were heroes. For right. you know, for a couple, even even now, um, a couple of them play for you know the the two high schools, and they're still reminded of of that. And sure. it's. It's, it's it's crazy to think that you know that you know as tw- you know they were heroes as 12 year olds and I mean that that little league team the lieutenant governor came to their big luncheon you know to congratulate them all individually after it was over and you can still if you still go and look if you Google um on YouTube or if you go to YouTube and look for Evan Blake, Pittsfield Little League, Bristol, Connecticut, home run. You will see the craziest home run I've ever seen hit by a twelve-year-old that cleared the cleared the scoreboard in straightaway center field uh, at Bristol, Connecticut, and might still be traveling. As far as I know, I don't know if it ever
1: came down. Here's an example of baseball and its importance in nineteen. So the the the. The Nashville Pirates, the Double A team, they leave at the end of the 1986 season. They weren't drawing; wasn't very well run the whole bit. They go down to Harrisburg, which is you know, if you're a Pirates affiliate, that, that's a better location anyway. And they're still, there's still the double. I mean, I, I'm not sure what the affiliation is, but they're still down there in Harrisburg. They're, that, that Washington, they're, they're, they're a Washington. They're Washington affiliate, Nationals, that right?
2: Which is almost as good because Washington's like it's not two long. hours away. Two and a half hours away, you hop
1: on the interstate, and you're there. Right. And uh, City Island was the, the facility. That's where the stadium is and everything else. So in 1988, Nashville hosted not the Little League World Series, but the Little League Alternative at the time, the Babe Ruth level of Bambino baseball. They hosted the Bambino World Series. And that was a big deal. It was in early August of 1988. And let me tell you, it drew a lot of people. And I'm like, wow. And the organizer of that tournament, the head of the Bambino baseball in the state of New Hampshire, was a Nashville guy. His name was Fred LaJoy. He's still alive. And he was so enamored with that. And he saw that, wow, this baseball is. Really taken off here, and people were starving for something to see in the summertime other than the, the the long Legion games and everything else. He so he started a push to try to get a minor league team back in Nashville, and they zeroed in on who else? The New Britain Red Sox. Joe Buse's the owner was. And what Joe Buses did was he put Nashua and Pittsfield, uh, not Nashua and, and Pittsfield, but Nashua, and New Britain, not the Pittsfield Red Sox, the New Britain Red Sox. So he put he put uh, the two cities kind of used Nashua as a leverage thing. It turned out that the city turned down a deal that would have would have uh, cost them two hundred thousand dollars to renovate Holman Stadium to get it up to minor league specs at the time in that in 1989, 1990 around then, and it would have been perfect but the the city the city alderman turned it down in a vote very short sighted um, uh, we we all we all have we have we have the same
2: story in 2000 when when a, a a citywide vote on a on a civic authority that would have run a brand new stadium and kept the new york Penn league in pittsfield was yeah. voted down right. um it was you know Normally, the the um, in those days, baseball was adjacent counties. You couldn't have a similar the same level team. Right. But the ownership of the then Pittsville Mets, who moved to New York to Troy, New York, said, "We'll you know we'll give up our we'll give up our our right to your county." You know if you if you can get this done, couldn't get it done, and the rest is history.
1: Right, and but again. And eventually, five years later, an independent league team came to Nashville, not the Pride, wasn't very well run, was kind of shady, lasted, that also was frozen out of the stadium uh, a year later, uh, after one year. But since that time, since the mid-90s, there are only two years where Holman Stadium did not have a tenant, a baseball tenant, and that was uh, 1997 and 2010. And ever since then, they have had somebody in there. I did a series on on sports and politics that won an a, uh, AP. award. I'm not blowing my own horn, but it did win an AP award. But I, but but baseball history is important here. But just as important is the fact that you have to have a strong political backing to have a team that's not a high school or you know or a local team in your facility. And I think that having baseball like that in your facility is a safeguard to make sure, and you're finding this out, Howard, that the facility is in good condition and is, is suitable. Because you put those things in a lease, the city has to accommodate a team. And I think you're finding those things out. Nashville did it. Chris English, the owner in Vermont right now, look, Holman Stadium is as much the way it is now is a lot attributed to him because he pushed to get renovations for Holman. I never would have thought there'd be an elevator at Holman Stadium to take you up a level. There's, you know, there's luxury suites. There's all those things that never, you would have never thought at the old Holman Stadium that you would have all because of baseball. And that's the important thing. Baseball has meant so much to both communities and is so much a part of the history and so much a part of probably the future in these two areas.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and it's great to see it continue to produce every year with us in the Futures League. Gentlemen, that's all I got for you. This has been fantastic. Thank you both so much for joining me And we look forward to seeing you guys in about 40 days here when the Futures League gets underway at the end of May.
2: It It will come come faster than you think. Yep, it comes up quick.
0: Yes, it does. Thanks for having us. Tom King, Nashua Telegraph, and Howard Herman of the Berkshire Eagle. Guys, thank you so much. And this has been Season 6, Episode 9 of Back to the Futures, the official podcast of the Futures League. We have new episodes coming out every Thursday. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see everyone soon.